This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Well, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series called The Gathering, Gathering, and the focus is on what we are doing right now. So we're going to take a number of weeks and just talk about this moment. Uh, When we gather, what do we do? Uh, Why do we do it? Uh, As we gather to worship the Lord, we're going to look at a number of activities uh, that happen in this gathering. I mean, what have we done already? We've prayed, uh, we've read scripture or heard it read, we've received communion, we've, uh, we sang together, uh, and I'll be teaching on every one of those elements um, because we want to come with a biblically informed understanding of worship and convictions that uh, stem from a biblical understanding of worship. Because here's what I have learned from my own life and from interacting with people over many, many years in church world, is that the subject of worship is a subject where there are many opinions. And there are more opinions than there are people, uh, because (laughs) many of us have multiple opinions about worship. And we probably have more opinions than we realize. Uh, and many of our opinions, things that maybe we, that we, it's, it's like a nine or a 10 to us might not even be, uh, emphasized in scripture at all. And certain other things that might be a eh, two or three or a four of my worship preferences might be a nine or a 10 biblically. So we want to understand, uh, God's direction, God's design, God's purpose for, Worship, because many of our opinions are subjective preferences. Oftentimes they're subjective preferences. Oftentimes they're rooted in tradition. And here's the funny thing about that we can always see that in someone else's tradition, uh, but we rarely are able to see that in our own. We're always able to see that someone else has a subjective experience, but where it's hard for us to see it on our own. And if you've ever been in a church that that struggled or battled through stylistic issues regarding worship or any aspect of worship, then I hope this will be a comforting and an encouraging uh, series because oftentimes we, we in this church at Grace Church, are, uh, do things, say things, uh, have habits that are oftentimes just based on tradition. When Ginger and I were in college, uh, we attended a controversial church. Uh, We were Southern Baptists. Nothing I'm about to say is going to be a critique of Southern Baptists because I'm probably a Southern Baptist at heart. So there you go. I grew up Southern Baptist, grew up traditional Southern Baptist. And uh, so we went to a Southern Baptist church, but it wasn't just Southern Baptist church. It was in Texas. Uh, It was in the early 80s. And uh, it was in Waco. So, I mean, it wasn't even in metropolitan uh, Texas. It was in small, smaller town, Texas. And, uh, and if you have no idea about the Southern Baptist world, or if you're out, if you just come into that recently, uh, it's very, very different in Texas, uh, now than it was 
30 years ago or however long there, uh, things were pretty similar. I mean, we, we all had choirs, we all had choir robes, we all had uh, hymnals, we all had tacky orange carpet in the sanctuary. Uh, and so everything was very, uh, pretty similar, at least in my limited exposure being a Texas uh, Baptist. But we were in a church that was the kind of church that you whispered about. Uh, it was a Southern Baptist church, but we didn't use hymnals. And they were in the chairs, but we didn't use them. We had an overhead projector. And I know there's children in the room, so I'll I'll be delicate. And uh, we projected lyrics on a a screen. And... um, And now, I mean, that's so common. I've seen lyrics projected on screen in worship now where there's so much movement and so much stuff going on. I mean, I I get motion sick. So now, but back in those days, just to project it, whoa. And here's the thing that happens. This is a Baptist church. Uh, Here's the thing that happens. If you're not holding a hymnal and you're singing in a praise chorus, projected up there, we exalt thee, we exalt thee, we exalt thee, O Lord, or whatever that song was, you could say that same chorus for about 15 minutes straight. If you're not holding a hymnal and the lyrics aren't written in the program and you're just looking up and it's college kids who, you know what happens, you move off to college and you go wild. And so uh, Pastor Brother Bob's not there, the pastor, and Biff, the youth minister with a mullet's not there anymore. And you're on your own at college town and Kids go crazy, and so what's going to happen? You're not hitting him. At some point, somebody's going to pull that out right there. They're going to close their eyes and do that, and then someone's going to go half mast, and then someone's going to slither all the way up with emphasis on slither, slither all the way up and do that thing. And we became the church that was known as charismatic because we had an overhead projector, and because there were some people doing that in the service, and it was, it was a shocker. It was a shocker. And here's the thing about that. 20 years from now, some college kid in this church right now, they're going to be out preaching somewhere like I'm doing, and they're going to preach on worship, and they're going to tell a story about the silliness of the church they grew up in and some tradition that we had that was completely silly, and we don't know why we did it. We just did it. And uh, they're going to be doing what I'm doing right now. We all have our blind spots. We all have these stylistic preferences. We all have these ideas about what's worshipful and what's decor, or what's decor, proper decorum before the Lord, what's appropriate. And those things change because there's not a Baptist church I know of now wherein the things that were controversial then would be controversial now. Uh, and the same is true for us that is the reality. There is so much uh, discussion about style and environment and all of these kind of things that Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans uh, and Romans 12, the verse I just read to you, he said this, in all our controversies about style in worship, one question has been missing. And here's the question, what is worship? That's a pretty important question. And tonight, I want to look at that, and I want to look at that through Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. These are the two most popular verses in 2015 in the United States. Uh, according to YouVersion, which is the most popular Bible app. They track every time you search a scripture, 
uh, just so you know. Uh, and uh, the most searched scripture in the U.S. were the two verses I'm going to read you last year. That's very telling because different, church, different countries had different verses, and you could look at where there's more persecuted Christians and see where the different verses searched. Fascinating study. And that doesn't mean everybody uses version, but uh, as an app, but it is the most common as far as I know. And these are the two most popular searched, and we presume then read, verses in the U.S. in 2015. Here they are. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, Let me say a little bit about what comes before this, and it'll have to be a very little bit because it's 11 chapters that come before this. But in this verse, the two verses we just read, Paul is changing um, his approach in the book of Romans, and he is moving from, if I could say in the most general terms possible, moving from more teaching theology, truth about God, to application of theology in our lives. And this is where he starts. That's why he says, I appeal to you, therefore, that therefore means that what I'm about to say to you is connected to what I've already said to you. And what he's already said to them in the previous 11 chapters is this. He has laid out a thorough explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has laid out a thorough explanation that our salvation is a gift of grace. That's what he's been talking about, that we are saved because Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. And if we will believe in Christ, if we will turn from our sin and believe in Christ, we receive as a free gift salvation. And it's all the work of the Lord. He says, makes it clear in the previous 11 chapters that God chose us not by anything we've done, but by his will. He says previously that we all deserve spiritual death, uh, but that God has given salvation by grace to those who will receive it by faith. And now he is having said all of that salvation by grace, he's now turning to application. Uh, when I was in a seminary, I did a, uh, an internship with a youth pastor, and I remember him telling me some very good advice about teaching God's Word. And he said that, go ahead and do all your study and prepare all your notes and, you know, write out or type out whatever your talk. And then when you're all done, go back to the beginning and in big capital bold letters at the top of your page, write, so What? Because he said, you always want to communicate what difference does this make in your life to the kids you're teaching. Don't ever just give them information. Go to the beginning and write, so what? So that you remember, I have got to have in here clear application for how this works out in your life. And so this is really Paul's so what? He's saying, I've told you all of these things, and now I'm going to tell you this is the difference it makes. I've told you Jesus saves you. And now what I'm going to tell you is here is the result. Based on all of that, I appeal, or I believe the NIV says, I urge you 
brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Based on everything that I've told you about grace, here is the first thing that should be in your mind as response. Present yourself, your bodies, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And that is your spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's so what, when he considers the doctrine of grace and what Christ has done for us in the gospel, his so what, when he thinks about the gospel, is present yourselves a living sacrifice, for this is your worship. So this passage here is talking about worship. It's talking about something much broader than what we're doing right now. It's not just a meeting that happens weekly, though this is worship. But he's talking about as we're going to see something broader. And what I want to do is I'm going to look primarily at verse 1. We'll look a little bit at verse 2. But I primarily want to look at verse 1 and see these things. He tells us the motive for our worship. So important, our motive. It's not just what do you do, but why do you do it? He tells us the nature of our worship. What is the nature of worship? Is it Bible reading? Is that the nature of worship? Is it singing? Uh, is it praying? Is that what is the nature of worship? And lastly, he talks about the context for our worship. So what's our motive for worship? What's the nature of worship? And what is the context for our worship? This message will be different than any of the others in the series because today I'm talking about something more than what's happening here. In the other Sundays, I'm going to talk about what's happening right now, right here. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. First of all, motive. This is our why. What is the why of worship? Well, he says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And that's a motive statement. It may not appear as much as a motive statement uh, in the ESV, which I just read to you. But the NIV... Um, translates it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present, uh, oh no, a view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So that's a little different, in view of mercy. Or the ESV, by the mercies, uh, uh, by his mercies, by the mercies of God. Or, uh, you know, because of mercy, in light of mercy. Before describing his, what is worship, what is spiritual worship, he's going to say, why do we worship? And we worship because God has been merciful to us in view of God's mercies or by the mercies of God. Now, the mercies is plural. It's, it's more than one mercy. It's many mercies, and it's because of these many mercies. If we're going to be worshipers of God with our lives, then we must always keep in view Mercy. Mercy. This is the motive. It is God's grace that is our motive. And if we could have read the previous 11 chapters, that would become so clear that it is by grace that we are saved. It's not what we've done. It's what he's done. We are undeserving, ill-deserving, but he is loving and merciful and gracious to us. And he is at work in us. He's not only has justified us, but he is conforming us to the image of his son by his spirit. We have died to sin and we are alive to righteousness. So it is amazing the truth of God's grace that he's covered. He said, by all of those mercies, present yourselves, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. He never wants us to forget that. God never wants us to forget that. I mean, the truth is, and this, the book of Romans teaches us clearly, is that God is holy. 
perfectly holy. If any of us saw him face to face without Christ, outside of Christ, uh, we would just be incinerated before his blazing holiness. God is completely perfect and holy, and we are sinful. Chapter 3 of this book says there's not one of us who does righteous, who does right before God. We are all, uh, we are all sinners, and we all deserve, because of our sin, we are all deserving of eternal judgment. But he says in chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he wants. He takes a lot of time to say whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, whether you know the law and are trying to obey it, or whether you just have the law internally written on your heart, you've all failed God. Everyone has failed. We've all fallen short of his glory, every one of us. But even though that's the truth, in light of, even in, in light of that reality, God shows his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He lays out a very strong picture that you were sinners, but he says, Jesus died for you because the Father loves you. So Christ gave his life. We gave thanks for that tonight as we took communion. In light of what he has done, we give thanks. He forgives us. He reconciles us to himself. We'll never be condemned. If you are in Christ here tonight, that means you're a Christian. You will never be condemned to judgment. You will never experience eternal judgment from God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 says that is mercy to us. Mercy has to do with helping someone in a pitiful state. Is it someone that is pitied because they're unable to help themselves? We use that term like mercy ministry. Often means serving people that cannot, that are, um, they cannot help themselves. They lack necessities. They lack uh, abilities. They, they are in dire uh, consequences. And they cannot pull themselves up. They need someone to reach out and help them. That's mercy. And God did that to us and for us by forgiving our sins and rescuing us when we never could have rescued ourselves. It's indescribable mercy. And when Paul comes to the part of the letter where he changes to how are we going to apply all the stuff I said, the first thing he says is offer yourself as a worshiper. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. When we keep his mercy in view, gratitude will motivate us and will change our purpose for what we do in all of life. This is the key. I think this is a foundational key to the Christian life. There's no one secret to the Christian life or three tips or something like this. The Bible's not written like a self-help manual where here's the one tip or, you know, something like that. It's not tweetable. You can't say in 140 characters, here is the big deal, unless you just wrote Jesus. I, I don't think you can just summarize, but Though there's not one, this is close. This is a key, not the key, but a key to the Christian life is keeping an eye on mercy in view of his mercy. Everything he's going to say in chapter 12 through 15, which is all application, it's how do you respond to the state, it's loving other people, it's using your spiritual gifts, all this kind of stuff he's going to say. It's all going to be under the heading, in view of mercy. 
that we must never take our eyes off the gospel. We must never look somewhere else, and we are distracted all over the place. But we must always keep our motive for serving God and loving others and living a life that is worshipful. We are to be motivated by grace, which is such good news. The gospel means good news. God says, be motivated by good news. Keep your eyes on good news. Listen to good news. I mean, how kind is God that his central calling here starts with, look at my mercy and everything else you are called to do here, just keep in view by the mercies of God because of mercy. That is our motive. Secondly, he talks about the nature of worship. That's our what. The the, the worship that's described here is present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that is foreign language to us, is it not? It would have been very common language to them. Uh, Very common language. To us, in an increasingly secular society, religious terms sort of mean so little, but they meant much to Paul's authors, both Jew and Gentile alike. And in this time, and in the centuries that predated this, the central aspect of worship was sacrifice. That was true for pagans. Pagans sacrificed animals to their gods to try to, uh, generally speaking, to try to manipulate the gods to get them to do what they wanted them to do, to get them to give them a harvest, to get them to give them crops, to give them a child if they were uh, unable to have children. So you sacrifice to get something, but still the sacrifice among pagans was central. That was the centerpiece of worship, and that was the centerpiece of worship for the Jews as well for, for very different reasons, very different reasons. But it was central that you, as part of your worship, you would, uh, that you would kill an animal or the priest would kill an animal. Your sins were ceremonially put on the animal, and the animal was killed that was an atoning sacrifice, or sometimes there was a burnt offering, which was a a sign of your devotion to the Lord, that you took an animal without spot or blemish, very prized, very valuable, and you offered it up to the Lord, and the animal was killed and then uh, burned in whole as a a symbol that that you're of your devotion uh, to the Lord who gives you everything. And so sacrifice was very central to them. But he doesn't say here, in view of God's mercy, bring an animal and sacrifice it. He says, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves. See, the challenge throughout the Old Testament was it was always easy just to offer an animal and be done with it. So I'll just do my religious duty. I'll offer an animal and then kind of go do what I want. And the prophets are addressing that all over the place in the Old Testament. God desires mercy and not sacrifice, the scripture says, for instance. He wants hearts devoted to him that are touched by mercy. He doesn't just want religious actions done by someone who brought in their animal and sacrificed it and then went and lived their lives doing whatever they wanted, right? That's not what it's about. And so they always address it. So here he's saying, no, you're not just bringing an animal. You are bringing yourself. And you are to present yourself as a living sacrifice. You don't present an animal to atone for your sins. Jesus already did that. He died for our sins. But you present yourself and you're a living sacrifice. And what does that mean? Well, it probably means that you're spiritually alive. You were dead, but now you're alive. So you're coming as a living sacrifice. And secondly, it just means your life is a sacrifice. You're not offering this dead animal as costly as it may have been to you because it was your, you know, your, your best animal or something. You're not offering that. You are offering 
your life. A living sacrifice means I am sacrificing my life, that my life is the burnt offering. It's not the atonement offering, but my life is a burnt offering. It's consumed by God. It is for God. That's, that's, that's what a living sacrifice, it's offering all of your life to him. Tim Keller, uh, writing about this verse, said this. He says, to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. I like that. It means to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says, in any area of life, and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area, in area of life. So it means actively to obey God, whatever he calls us to do from the scripture. And passively, it means be, being willing to receive and thank God for anything that he sends into our lives. That's being a living sacrifice. Well, man, isn't that kind of legalistic? You're saying that the Christian life is about making yourself at God's disposal in view of God's mercy. That's the most of what I've talked about tonight, in view of God's mercy. No, it's about the mercy of God. And in view of that mercy, offering our whole lives out of gratitude and joy to him. A living sacrifice is a life offered to God that's holy and acceptable. I think the NIV says that is pleasing to him. So he is pleased with us in Christ, and therefore we seek to live a life that is pleasing to him. We seek to worship him in a way that brings pleasure and that we please him by our lives or acceptable. So we are uh, we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we're a living sacrifice, holy. That means we're set apart to him, and it's acceptable. We bring it in Christ to please him. That is our spiritual worship. Now, this word spiritual worship is translated different ways, depending on if you've read this, this verse in the New American Standard or the NIV or maybe New King James or wherever you've read it. Oftentimes, it's a different word. In the ESV, the footnote says, I hate to go all footnote on you, but this is helpful. The footnote says, which is your uh, rational service. You may have heard the translation, which is your reasonable service. The word translated there is where we get our word logical from, logic or logical. So that's why they say rational or reasonable. What, what it means is that in view of the mercy, what God has done for us, when you see what Christ has done for you, the reasonable the rational, the logical, the spiritual response is to offer yourself wholly to God, captured by the love of this God who gave his son for you, devoted with joy to him. That's what he's saying. That is what worship really is. When you have a clear view of God, offer yourself to him. When you realize that Christ became a man, suffered, and died for your sins, the only, this is what it is, the only reasonable response to that kind of mercy is to love God with your whole life. When you see God becoming man and enduring indescribable suffering for my sins, the reasonable, the logical, the spiritual, the only, we can say it this way, the only imaginable, appropriate response would to offer everything for that God. Not the God who says, let's see what kind of sacrifices you offer up and we'll see what I do for you in return. That's the pagan God. Let's see how good you are and how moral you are and we'll see if I'll bless you with salvation. That's legalism. I have to earn God's favor. Biblical Christianity is he pours out his favor on us by grace and mercy to the undeserving. 
and we weren't looking for him. We were dead. The Bible describes us as dead. The Bible sometimes describes us as his enemy. The Bible describes us as opposed to him with our beings, and yet those are the people he loves, his enemies, those who disobey him, those who are not looking for him, and he comes after us with his arms of love, embracing us, pulling us to himself, granting us new life, making us his children, adopting us in his family, and then transforming us on the inside, giving us new desires over time to know him and walk with him, giving us his spirit to give us new life. And, and, and the Bible says when you see that kind of God, you're not going to offer up a sacrifice. You're going to say, here I am, God. I want to love you with my life. I want to serve you with my life. Why would I want to go anywhere else? Who, uh, to whom would I want to go besides you? That's what Peter said to Jesus. Where else would we go? Where else would we go? Now, we're tempted. He found some other places to go. He denied the Lord. So we're tempted daily to go elsewhere. But when we're thinking straight, when we're in view of mercy, when mercy is in view, We want to love him with our lives, and that's the nature of worship. Spiritual worship or rational service or reasonable worship, it's not just 90 minutes on Sunday. It's not a 15-minute devotional on Monday. That's part of it. I'm going to devote weeks to talking about it. I think it's an important part of it, but it's bigger than that. It's all of life. The Lord's not honored if we just give him 90 minutes. That's just bringing the animal, kill the animal, you know, get the animal, then let me go live my life until it's time to, time to come bring another sacrifice. That, that's what he's against. Living sacrifice doesn't just offer it and go off. Living sacrifice is, Lord, I'm here for you all the time. Want to, want to follow you. It's a discipleship. It's a servanthood that is characterized here by being a living sacrifice. So that's the nature of worship. It's whole life sacrifice in view of mercy. Motive is mercy. The nature of it is whole life, uh, or or is, is living sacrifice, rather. And then the context of it, look at his context. The context is really whatever you're doing because it is life. It's, a, it's your body, offer your body, which means your person, but offer your body. It's wherever your body is. We are physical people. This would have been a shocker to the people um, in Rome, the people with kind of a Greco-Roman uh, philosophical idea. The body was bad. The spirit was good. Paul says, no, the body is the Lord. So offer your body to him. So you are, you are physical. You take up space somewhere. And so when, if you're a living sacrifice, offering your body wherever you are, that's the place that you're to worship. That's the place you're to worship. And that, so that doesn't mean, oh, yeah, man, I worship nature. That's why I haven't been to church in five years, because my body's out there hiking for the glory of God. i got a verse for it. That's not what the verse means, because there's some other verses that say some other things in the Bible. Uh, Don't forsake the gathering together, some some things like that. But what it does mean is that wherever we are in life, our context is wherever we are. It's a life where our minds are to be transformed by the Word. That's the next verse. I don't want to spend much time on there. I don't have time to spend much time on this. But he says, don't follow the pattern of the world. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we're to be changed by our mind being renewed. And you know what mind renewal largely is? Mind renewal largely is getting a view of mercy. That's where it starts, seeing the holiness of God, then seeing the mercy of God towards, towards me, and then being touched, broken by mercy, overwhelmed by grace, asking God to transform my thinking, transform my affections, so that I'm changed into a person that increasingly wants to obey the Lord. Now, I obey, I'm called to obey by faith, whether I feel that or not. 
But the goal is not just to spend an entire life. I never wanted to do any of that obeying the Lord stuff. That, then you're not a Christian. It's, it's, a trans, it's a transformation that happens on the inside that the, so that the Lord uh, gives us new desires. We turn from sin. We put to death our old desires. We get a view of mercy. We have our mind renewed by him in the scripture. We offer our lives as a living sacrifice, which is a life of repentance. The living sacrifice life is a life of repentance. It's a life of failing and coming back to mercy with a new view of mercy and grace. And uh, that, so that's what we're called to. That is this life of worship, a transformed mind. It is putting ourselves at his disposal when we see mercy. I remember reading the biography of a Christian leader. Uh, his name was John Wimber, and he was a Christian leader in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he founded the Vineyard Movement. Uh, he died, I think, in 97. But one of the things that struck me, he was a bit of a controversial figure in some places, um, but one of the things that struck me was just that he was a regular guy, at least the biographer described him as such, just a regular guy, self-effacing guy, uh, saw the Lord move in mighty ways through his life, but never was kind of a hyper, it was never a self-promoting guy, just a very down-to-earth guy that saw the, Lord, saw the Lord work in very dramatic ways through him at various times. And this was a saying he had in the book. I remember this saying. It's, I don't remember much about the book. I read it years ago. But I remember this saying that he had in the book, and this was how he viewed his life. He met Christ later in life. He's a musician, played with the Righteous Brothers, met Christ later in life, and, uh, and was just devoted to the Lord because he couldn't believe what Christ had done for him by grace. And uh, this was his quote. This was kind of his life philosophy. He said, I am just spare change in the Lord's pocket. He can spend me any way he wants. I'm just spare change in his pocket. He can spend me any way he wants. Now, it wasn't a statement that God doesn't love me or something like that. He knew God's love. But he was simply saying, in view of mercy, I just want to be spent by the Lord. I just want the Lord to take me out and take me out of his pocket and spend me, use me, wherever he wants to use me. I just want to follow him. Whatever he says to do, I just simply want to do that and see what he does. Such a simple, I think that's what's in view here. A living sacrifice is, Lord, I'm yours. I'm at your disposal. I'm spare change in your pocket. Just spend me however you want. Lead me to the relationships you want. Create the circumstances you want. Give me the grace to praise you when the circumstances aren't the ones I would have picked. Give me faith for that. Give me a fresh revelation of the mercy of God so that my heart and attitude is changed and spend me however you want. That's reasonable service in view of mercy. So the motive is his mercy to us. The nature is, well, it's an informed response that in view of that, we give our lives to him. We're at his disposal. And the context of worship, it it moves beyond spiritual, quote unquote, things to all of life. Wherever your body is, that's where you're a living sacrifice. Wherever you are, that's where you're to present yourself to God. So back to the original question, when I gave the opening, uh, beginning, what is worship? It's not a genre of music. That's what it is in our culture now, worship music. Like, it's a genre. There's whole radio stations, in essence, devoted to the genre of worship. It's not a genre of music. Worship, it's not, I mean, that could be part. Music is part of worship, but that's not the definition. The definition is it's not just gathering like this, going to church. It's not just your personal prayer time. 
I think worship at the most basic level is responding to God's mercy by presenting our whole lives in service to him. That's worship from this verse. Responding to God's mercy by presenting our whole lives in service to him. And realizing that even when we fail, get mercy back in view so that our heart can be repentant and change and we can grow and mature in him. Responding to God's mercy by presenting our whole lives in service to him. It means being gripped by God's love for me so that I want to offer my life to him. It's being aware of his love so that I'm not trying to earn his favor. I'm not trying to do good things so I don't get in trouble. I'm not motivated by a fear like he wants to harm me. We are motivated by the fear of the Lord, but that's the awe of the Lord. That's not like the Lord's, uh, you know, just going to go crazy on me or something like this. It's not trying to obey to get to heaven. It is because the Lord loves me, now I want to offer my life as a, as a sacrifice to him at his disposal. So what's God called me to do? Well, that might look like loving and serving and caring for my wife. That's an act of worship. If you're a student, this could be an act of worship. Being here's an act of worship. You know what another act of worship is? It's saying, Lord, in view of your mercy, in view that you've called me to yourself, in view that you want my life to count, and you've given me a purpose, and you've called me to glorify you with my gifts and to represent you wherever I am, I want to do my schoolwork for your glory. I want to do my schoolwork not just for my parents, not just for my teacher, not just for my own getting some level of success that I feel good about. I want to say, in view of your mercy, I'm at your disposal, and I believe you want me to faithfully use the gifts to the best of my ability for your glory. And so an act of worship is going home, uh, unless you have like you don't study on Sundays, unless that's your conviction or something. Well, I don't study all seven days. Well, you need to change that conviction. But... (laughs) Some people don't study on Sundays. I can respect that. But if, unless that's your conviction, and don't try to start that, by the way. I should have even let that secret out. But uh, don't pull that one on your parents. But, uh, but it might be going home tonight, and this is worship, and going home tonight and studying for tomorrow's math text, test is an act of worship, too. It's an act of worship, too. We're, you know what that means? We're always worshiping. You could go home and study motivated by getting the best grade in the class, by being respected by your peers, by impressing your teacher, and by being successful in life. That's worship too. That's self-idolatry. So you could go be motivated by self-idolatry, or you could be motivated by the glory of God. Or how about this? Worship is realizing really that in all the regular stuff of life, if I do it in view of God's mercy to honor him, that is my living sacrifice. Or how about this? If someone, if since God has shown mercy to me, this is worship. Because God, in view of mercy, by his mercies, because God has shown mercy with me, been infinitely patient with me, loved me, gave his son for me, gave me new life, because God has been merciful to me, then I can worship the Lord by taking that mercy and extending it to someone else. Did you ever think about that? That when you extend mercy to others, that's an act of worship if you do it informed that, Lord, I'm at your disposal. I don't have the right to hold a grudge. That's not an option for a Christian. So I can't say, Lord, in view of your mercy, he did me wrong. Oh, oh, I'm never talking to him again. I can't stand. That's not even an option. If I'm a living sacrifice, then I'm to show mercy as I've received mercy. So living sacrifices, whole lives devoted to the Lord by mercy, that means that when your coworker has wronged you, you can extend mercy to him or her, and that's worship. That's an act of worship when done right. When, when your parent fails you, when your friend abandons you, 
when someone opposes you, whatever it is, as a living sacrifice, my rational service, my spiritual worship is to show other people mercy as I have. I'm just using a few examples to show this applies to all of our life. Worship's not the service. Worship's not what we did the first 25 minutes tonight. Not going to be the word police, but yeah, but it's not worship and then the word. This is worship. If listening to God's word and apply it's not worship, whoa, I don't know what it is. So it's not like we had worship and now we're about to have the word. And then in just a second, I think we're going to sing again. So then we'll be back to worship. We're going back to worship, but then we're dismissing. And so there's no worship there. Yes, there is. Now, strictly speaking, I understand I'm not opposed to a worship service or we gather for worship. Yes, yes. There's gathered worship. Which And there's scattered worship. Scattered worship is your life before the Lord. Whenever you leave here, whatever you're doing is to be done for his glory, is his, uh, making yourself at his disposal. Your spare change in his pocket, he'll spend you however you want. I want to be used by you, Lord. So I want to obey your word. Help me. Help me see mercy. Change my heart. Give, help me to repent. So that, that is scattered worship. We're going to all go scatter and worship all week long. And then we're going to gather and worship together. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the series. So this is really big because you're always worshiping. Question is, am I a faithful worshiper or an unfaithful worshiper? I'm, because I'm always worshiping. I'm always motivated. I always have something in view. And I'm always either keeping my life to myself or I'm offering my life as a sacrifice. I'm always doing one of those. A couple thoughts before we dismiss here. One, two, I just got two points. I'm going to call these application or... Uh, I saw somebody use the word, not application, but consequences in a good way. These are the consequences of grace. I love that. The consequences of mercy is, ah, all of life for his glory. Number one, keep mercy in view. It's the heartbeat of the Christian life. Keep mercy in view. You will find assurance. You will find peace for your soul. You will find power to live when you keep mercy in view. Here's my experience. When gathered worship is dull to me. If, if, we're sing, if the preacher is preaching the Bible and we're singing songs that are true, and that's most evangelical churches, those things happen, you know. So if that or something's true, so obviously, um, if that's the case and my heart is dull, then I have probably lost my view of mercy. It's like you're driving. I see that. I'm going there. I'm going. That's my marker. Oh, I lost it. Now I don't know where I'm going. It's, it's that. You're on a hike. You're looking for that spot. I lost the spot. I'm lost. That's what it is. Well, the band not, might not be very good. The preacher might not be very good. Well, those are both true. But the reality is if we're hearing it all about Jesus, there should be enough mercy there to take my sluggish soul and bring it to passionate life. Because mercy is so amazing. It's a drop of mercy is explosive. And so we got to keep it in view. This is my experience. When my devotional life is lagging, I shared this two weeks ago that I was wrestling, not my prayer life. It was, I felt like it wasn't where it needed to be. I shared that as an illustration a few weeks ago. And what I've come to see is this. I've got to get mercy in view. I've got to see how kind the Lord is. His kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness draws us into relationship. I need to see that I'm not receiving what I deserve. I need to see the love of the Father adopting me into his family. I need to see the Lord choosing me from eternity past. I need to see Christ dying for me. I need to see the promise of God that he will be with me until the end. I need to see the promise of God that he's coming back for me and that he will raise me and give me a resurrection body. I need to see grace and mercy. And then my heart will be warmed. That's what warms our hearts. 
We need to find ways to preach the gospel to ourselves. So it may be memorizing some verses about saving grace. It may be singing songs of his grace. We're, I'm going to do a whole part of a message on why do we sing, and I want to talk about what do we sing. Because what, what we need, we try to pick songs in view of mercy. We try to sing songs that the lyrics will give you a glimpse of grace will give you a vision of mercy, will open up the window of, to Christ and his salvation. Because that's when we'll offer our lives as a living sacrifice in view of mercy. That's why we don't sing songs where the all four verses are what we're going to do and what you got to do and what we're going to do. And our, here's what we have done and here's what we are going to do. And here's what... Because, man, that, that doesn't lead me to be a living sacrifice celebrating us and celebrating me as opposed to celebrating him. So, in view of God's mercy, read books about grace. Listen to some music about grace. Talk to a leader. We can help you. If you need books or music, need to know where to read in Scripture, need to know some verses to memorize, talk to someone in the church. We can help you with that, someone who maybe knows a little bit more if you're a newer Christian. John Stott said, there's no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. John Stott's a very wise, but probably my favorite Bible commentator. He said, there's no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. Because when we're gripped by the mercies of God, we say, Lord, here's my life. Take it. I'm a living sacrifice. What do you want? How can I obey you? How can I please you? How can I honor you? Here's the second point, and, and then we're done. Let's gather as living sacrifices. Let's gather as living sacrifices when we come together. If you're new here, you're checking things out, you're not even sure you're a Christian, you're kicking the tires, you're figuring it all out, be our guest. Come be a consumer. Just come get. Come take. Just come, just, just come and let us teach you, care for you, help you. Just come and receive. Okay? If you are figuring this all out, please, we're glad that you are here. A lot of what I'm talking about may not even apply to you if you don't know Christ yet. You've got to start with the first view of his mercy and what he's done for you. But if you're a Christian and you are here, obviously we want you to receive as well. Um, We want this to be a safe place to investigate for sure. And we want this to be a safe place for believers, obviously, as well. But if you are a believer... um, I want to challenge you to live a life at God's disposal in view of his mercy when we gather. When we gather with a glimpse of his mercy, that will affect how I sing. Because I would desire to pour my heart out to him. Being a living sacrifice means, Lord, I'm at your disposal. and I am thanking you for what you have done for me. It means that I will reach out to others with the same mercy I've received. That means I'm welcoming others into the merc- pointing them to the merciful arms of the Lord and welcoming them because God welcomed me with mercy. It means I give generously. It means that I pray with passion because I'm not going through a rote exercise to a distant being. I'm speaking my heart to my Father who gave the Son Jesus for me because he loves me and has welcomed me, calls me to come into his presence by grace. I'm to run into his presence because of mercy. It affects my attitude. It affects how I serve. It, it affects everything about me. We're, not just tr- we're, we're never going to try to manipulate anybody's emotions. We're never going to say, let's get a song that will really get everybody pumped up and do that one thing. Yeah, let's just wait right there because then, oh, yeah, we're all feeling it now. You know, 
because we don't all feel the same things. We don't all like the same music. We don't like the same style. That's why we want to concentrate on what are we singing? What are we saying? What are we praying? What are we hearing? The, what are we reading? What are we reciting? What are we re- doing a responsive reading to? These, these are the things that change our hearts. These are the, it's the mercy of God that we have received. I pray that God will strike, that we'll be freshly struck with his love and realize we are free, we are forgiven, we are called to the most glorious purpose imaginable. Now let's offer ourselves joyously and freely and openly without reserve to the Lord. That's worship. And so we're at gathered worship right now. If the band can come, we're about to leave gathered worship, and then we're to scatter into our lives. You may have private times of worship. You may have family worship. Those are wonderful. I encourage that. But all of life is to be lived for his glory. So before we get to the subset of a life of worship, which is our gathered worship for the next number of weeks, I just wanted us to hear this text tonight in view of God's mercy. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, your spiritual worship, your rational service, your reasonable service to the Lord. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.